0: Hello, listeners. Welcome to Freelance Friday with Vay Casey, a podcast all about freelancing through the opinions and experiences of freelancers. Today on the show, got my friend Andrew Cagle. Welcome, Andrew. Thank you for coming on. Thanks for having me. Yeah, man. Uh, Andrew and I are kind of, uh, would you call it, say office buddies? Something like that. I don't know. We, we work at the same co working space.
1: Yeah, we we're offices. fellow waxers.
0: Yeah, there we go. Yeah. We wax around together. <laughs> Sounds provocative.
2: Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> we'll thanks. come back to that.
0: <laughs> yeah. Okay. Okay. Sounds good. Uh, well, thanks for coming on, man. Um, I'd love it if you kind of introduce yourself to the guest and tell us your story.
2: Sure. Um, a little like, kind of like high level what I do and then just kind of go into yeah the the story. Yeah. Great. Um, so I am, so I, f- I feel like I oscillate, I have a hard time saying I'm either a cinematographer or a cinematographer or a filmmaker because I, I I do both. Um I've kind of fallen in, fallen into focusing um on cinematography the past several years as a filmmaker, but for me my career is really focused on documentary filmmaking. Um so I really love filling a doctor, director of photography role. Um and that's how I make my income, but when I'm not shooting other people's stuff, I'm always looking for trying to work on something uh, of my own. Um, which is why I really can't remove filmmaker from, I feel like what I do creatively. Um, so my freelance journey, actually, we were just kind of talking about risk, um, and kind of taking risks and jumping into yeah. unknown situations. Um, my freelance journey started like after I got into video and film and in 2000, 2014, Uh, I was working at a company called Texags. If you're an Aggie out there, you'll know what I'm talking about. If you're not, you're going to be like, what the hell is that? It's a very niche media company. Um, and you just have to look it up. (laughs) It's (laughs) explained. Um, but I was one of two staff video people in college station, Texas doing sports stuff. And, um, it was good. Learned a lot. had a great, uh, partner down there. Awesome people that I worked with. Um, but ultimately I wanted to, it wasn't like the, it wasn't the type of stories I really wanted to tell and the kind of work I wanted to do. Um, so my wife and I, we moved to Beirut and that's when my freelance journey began, um, was not in the U.S., but in a different country. <laughs> and there was a lot of, um, I look back on that and we were like in our mid twenties, um, not like a super long time ago, um, now that I'm in my thirties. But there was a lot of like idealism, I think, and it worked out pretty well. Um, But I feel like that's where kind of, I really started to learn and ask the questions like on the business side of what does it take to actually do this on my own uh, as a career. Um, And so, you know, we had this idea, we're gonna be there for like five, 10 years, and then come back to the the States. Um, We're there for a year and a half. Uh, Visas didn't work out. my wife had residency, uh, but there was no provision for someone working as a freelance worker to be able to live and have a work visa in Lebanon. So we had an apartment, we had a car, his whole life and all these things. And, you know, I had other friends who were kind of doing the same thing in the, in the documentary and journalistic realm covering the region. Uh, and every now and then you'd hear about a friend who get a WhatsApp message and it's like, Hey, I got turned away at the, the airport and I'm going back home to wherever, France, America, or whatnot. And so I didn't want that to be me coming back from like a, uh, I was doing a lot of work mostly in like Africa at the time cause that's where I had still like kind of some connections. Um, and I don't want to come home from some trip and then like have to call my wife and be like, hey, so you're going to have to like sell our car, like get rid of all the stuff in the apartment and all that. Um, like mostly in a foreign language. <laughs> <laughs> and not we, let we, me come back yeah and I'll just be chilling waiting for you back home I guess like in Texas with family or something um, <laughs> that would be wild um, so that's that's that was like kind of how my freelance journey started but I think that time in Lebanon was like a really critical turning point yeah. I think to give me where I am today
0: so did you end up like leaving just kind of preemptively because you didn't want that to happen you were worried about that happening and you're like yes.
2: ah, this has happened
0: for my friends too many times
2: yeah. Well, there's a couple of things. We had been there a year and a half and, um, you know, everyone has different situations there, but even our friends who were to NGOs who had proper work visas, um, it was just getting harder and harder for Americans to stay and work there. Um, and part of that I learned later, like, I think we did leave at the right time because I thought I could stretch in another year, maybe max before somebody maybe cares. Um, and I think we would have gotten kicked out anyway, cause it turns out in the next year, the American embassy, um, basically told the Lebanese government not to give work visas to Americans because they couldn't guarantee their safety, which nobody living there cared about anyway. But, um, they were like, the government was like, we, Americans are a liability and
0: mm-hmm. we don't want to take
2: care of them. Um, but the other thing going on at the time was, so I, I had done a lot of small, local stuff for the most part, like in Lebanon, nothing big. You know, like I had this idea, I wanted to go out there and like, I wanted to be like the guy based in Beirut. So whenever like Vice or New York Times or um, independent documentary people were gonna say, we're gonna go shoot something in Iraq or Syria or Egypt or whatever, I would have these connections It'd be like, they'd call me and I'd fly out and kind of be this person who knew the language and culture and had the technical skills. That's not really how it worked. <laughs> um, and what I learned is, you know, it's all about personal connections, but on those type of productions, the crews generally always come from either staff person or you come from the States. And so during that summer, kind of before we we left in the fall, I had gotten, I did like three jobs kind of for Vice in the period of a couple months. Um, First one was, uh, a show called black market, um, needed a B camera operator. And so I helped on that as a local, um, the executive producer, somebody I had like made a connection through six months earlier, hadn't heard anything, email out of nowhere. Um, and then there was some, there was some protests and some social movement written on around a, a trash protest, a trash crisis actually led to protests and kind of a political. Uh, protest movement related to that, which is right now actually, like when I was going through, like, I think the a continuation of that that just took a couple years to get bigger. Wow. And so I started just, I had shot, I'd been shooting some pickups in the Bekaa Valley and some Syrian camps. And I was driving back into Beirut and um, the road was like blocked off how I'd normally get to my apartment. And, you know, I heard that there was like protests uh, downtown by the uh, parliament building. And so I got home, threw down one camera kit, ran in and grabbed the other one that wasn't as expensive <laughs> and like <laughs> handkerchief, ran out in the street, grabbed a bottle of water. And then some guy was like, you're going down to the protests. And I hopped on his like on the back of his like motor scooter and we went down there. And so the next few days I just started filming, uh, the protests that were happening like a half mile from my apartment, uh, sold that footage to Vice News, um, and then produced a little dispatch for them. Um, back when they are still online. And that rolled into me shooting, um, working on an episode that never aired for Vice and HBO. So I kind of had this like turn where I was like, oh, okay, I'm doing stuff for like a professional, like this is kind of more level work I want to do. And that was the same time we were realizing that our, our situation there like legally was going to be difficult. So it, we kind of thought if I want to, so basically what that showed me was like, okay, things have been slow here in Beirut. If I ever want to support a family and like make a career, I've got to go back to the States. It's like, just not going to happen here. Um, so we moved to New York. It was kind of like, where do you go? If you want to take this step and see if this will work out as a career. And so uh, we sold a bunch of stuff and yeah, we went back home to Texas for a couple of weeks and then moved to New York. <laughs> That's wild.
0: What uh, Whenever you moved to... Beirut originally. What, like, why'd you pick that place? What was going through your mind? So That's a good question. Like all of these things. What was the timeline like? All that kind of stuff.
2: Yeah, so I think that takes me back to more of, like, the preamble to my story. Um, I didn't go to film school. Um, I didn't really have any interest um, in any kind of video or film production. Um, you know, when I was in high school, I was really interested in music and like really music was my thing. And then I, I liked like cooking as well. So there was like a creative aspect there, but it wasn't like visual. Um, but I think that was always still there in college. Um, but I went to Texas and I'm an army ROT, army ROTC scholarship. So I, I did three years of ROTC planning to go into the army. Um, until I, uh, terminated my contract and, and left. Um, essentially as a conscious, uh, objector. So for, for faith reasons, um, I felt like it didn't reconcile with my Christian faith. Um, and at the time I had been studying Arabic in school. And so I, I was, a, I basically did Millie studies in Arabic as my major in college. Okay. So moving to Beirut, like my wife said the same thing. And that was why we chose Beirut. And, uh, for me, you know, my last year in college, I really had no idea what I was going to do. You know, I, I finished school, like I kind of got interested in documentary filmmaking, which just kind of led to just general video making. I wouldn't say film or anything like elevated, but just how to make videos. And that was fun. And I think it was because it was something I could put myself into to where I was always learning. And I think it, there's not one moment, but I think it was like this process of, um, the more I learned about the technical aspect and about story, I just developed like a a love for the, uh, for the craft. And so by the time I finished school, I was like, I don't know how I'm going to make money or what I'm going to do for a living. (laughs) Uh, but I want to figure out how to do this. I was like, I have no idea how to do this, but I know I want to figure out how to make a living making videos. Um, and so for, for, my wife and I, um, you know, moving to the Middle East was kind of a combination of like trying to, it was like our, kind of our dream. We wanted to each be able to, to kind of like to do our, um, vocations in that place, in mm-hmm. that context of a place that we really loved and cared about and a language that we had grown to, um, really enjoy learning and feel connected with. And that connects even more to people. Um, so it was just this big risk and experiment to see, like, could we combine all these things we really love into like a life that held all of them?
0: What, uh, what did you say your wife does?
2: Uh, so at Is the it... time, you know, at the time, my wife, we, she got a job at a school. Okay. Um, so she was teaching like high school kids, like English literature and composition. Um, so all, all Lebanese students.
0: Okay, cool. Yeah. Uh, what, uh, so I mean, did you yeah. have any experience or knowledge of producing videos or shooting before you went over there or what's,
2: yeah, I, I, I mean,
0: I, what's kind of that story there? Yeah. So I think. I mean, you were did you work at Tex, Texag or whatever? Yeah. Did, was there anything before that or.
2: Yes. Yeah. So I kind of like messed around my last year in college. Like my first camera ever was, so this will like, this is like a good, I think dating to like show the evolution of like from, cause I kind of got started in like, like what we call the DSLR revolution. Yeah. My first camera was this Canon uh, Canyon Vixia. I can't remember the number, but the really big like thing that was exciting about it was that it shot 24p. Now in a 60i interlaced wrapper, I'll <laughs> be but yeah. it, it was like this was when it was people were like, cinematic video. And I got one of those things where you like screw it on to the like a not a Leica adapter, it was a cheaper version, but you screw it on to the front of like what's essentially a handy cam. And then you focus on the ground glass and then you can still uh, screw a still lens into it. And it vignettes like hell, but you've got depth of field. And it was just like mind blowing. And people are like, oh, it's so beautiful. And I look back at that old stuff and it's kind of funny. I don't know. It has like, I don't know, actually, it still has this like nostalgic. Yeah. It, it, I don't know. It was like a really, I think it was a really exciting time, like in video making. I mean, where were you at in like that 2000s, around 2009,
0: 2010? Uh, at that point I was, I was in college and I'd always had an interest in like photography and video production and I had done some stuff. Like, I mean, as a kid, I always loved cameras. Mm. Uh, and then just kind of dabbled around with stuff here and there. Like, like I would do like school projects in high school and do video projects for those. Uh, but then I guess, see, 2009, 2010, I was just going into college at Dallas Baptist university and hadn't, I hadn't really done a whole, a whole, whole lot at that point, but I knew that it was something that was kind of like on my radar. Mm -hmm. So I think that was like, it's probably 2011, Mm -hmm. 2012 where I really started kind of delving in. And at that point we were using DSLRs like solely. And it was like 5D Mark II.
2: Yeah. 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 uh,
0: Rebel T2i.
2: Yeah. I mean, I actually, during, this was a time when I got to know, um, you know, our friend Doug Kumbara yep. pretty well. Yeah, yep. Um, because <coughs> you know, um, it's interesting. I feel like the beginning of my video journey actually has a Dallas connection. Um, that was in college station and, um, during my senior year of college, um, I don't know if you know what the I am second ministry. Mm-hmm. Um, so they want to like pioneer like a university ministry. And, you know, part of, beyond just like small groups, like exploring the Bible and questions around it, there's a storytelling component. And so we did like our own videos. And so like, that's like Doug and myself and our friend Holland, Greg, um, we kind of did all the media storytelling. And so we like recreated the I Am Second videos, like on a, like a cheaper scale (laughs) 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 uh, than the guys at Tormeo, Sam and Scott. And um, so that was kind of like an interesting, like my first kind of like proper project, just like very DIY.
0: So you had ever you never really messed with a camera before this?
2: No, 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 not no. Like I mean, nothing like at all. I, you know, I I I went to Morocco for a summer during college, and like borrowed a friend's um, uh, like Canon DSLR, and really enjoyed taking pictures. Um, but like there was like that project my senior year of school, and then I went to Jordan uh, for my study abroad after my senior year. And I convinced my, um, professor to, uh, instead of like doing language classes or doing a paper, um, for two, myself and two friends to do a documentary. And so we basically spent three months in Jordan and the West bank, uh, like trying to produce and film our own, uh, documentary on right of return and Palestinian identity. Um, we came back, we had all this like footage, which we had like, like a terabyte and a half, which at the time I would so much fitted at, at the time, time oh that gosh. was, <laughs> and we got back and they were like, yeah. So it turns out the university like they won't let you do that. You got to write a paper, um, but it's probably <laughs> a good thing because I don't. It would have been the worst film ever. But all that to say, I think that was like a really great learning process. With like, it's so funny because I think that's what taught me how to produce uh, when I was like 21 years old. Uh, just like cold emailing and cold calling people that, I mean, when I look back, it's kind of crazy because I think about the people that actually sat down with us. And I'm like, looking back now, this is 10 years ago. And I'm like, I can't believe people actually like gave us the time of day <laughs> to spend time for our film. I mean, people like at the UNRWA, UN Relief and Works Agency, um, like people at the PLO in Romola, um Nora Arakat. Ar- who is like uh, a very well-known Palestinian lawyer related to Saab Erekat, Who's a chief negotiator for the, um, well, former chief negotiator for the Palestinian side and
0: the. So like, so more like bigger, bigger level people, or like more known kind of yeah,
2: kind of people that like could have just said no to some like college kids, um, but um, so yeah, you know, I I think my education, like learning how to make films, was very much like trial and error experiential. So like, you know, that's kind of where I jumped in in, in early. And um, once I finished school, my first job was for Seed Effect, which is a microfinance, uh, small microfinance nonprofit based here in Dallas. They were very new at the time. They worked um, in South Sudan in one location in Kajukeji. And they needed like storytelling media, um, like, you know, as everyone does for development and fundraising. And, you know, it's interesting because still I was like very untested. I look back at myself at that time. Like, I can't believe they sent me to South Sudan uh, for a year. Because you didn't have any, like, you didn't really have any work to show, like any work to show, right? I mean, I had like a reel. So I had like some I'm second stuff. I had this footage from Jordan. Okay. Um, I had this random stuff that I would like shoot around campus. I mean, it's just like funny kind of thinking back, like. Little things like I'm trying to remember um, stuff I was. I mean, I think like I remember like I think John Dale and I we did like a little video for like some like women's ultimate frisbee team at A and You know, I got paid. So here's my first paid job. <laughs> my first paid job was when I was in school. I made a video for the residence hall association, like a I don't know like a three to five minute video, and you want to know how much they paid me. How much? $150. I don't know how many hours I spent on it, but I was like, you know, extra income. It didn't matter. You're like, oh my gosh, I'm getting paid to play with this stuff. Yeah. So like little funny things like that are like, yeah. So that's kind of like where it started. And I was just trying to figure out how do I, how do I do this for a living? Um, or like, how do I figure out how to do this? as like, business, but also yeah. creatively. So I went to South Sudan. Um, that was good. Learned a lot. That was like the first time that, you know, all my energy was for the most part, you know, being put into like, how do I tell stories through video? Um, I had other responsibilities, but like spent a year in South Sudan and I created enough. I think I learned enough, improved enough and made enough to when I came back. Um, somebody used to know called station who is one of the owners of TechSags. Uh, sent me like an email and he was like, Hey, uh, I know you just got back and you don't have a job (laughs) yet. (laughs) I was getting married at the time. Um, he was like, uh, do you want to come interview, uh, to work here? And like, I like, I had no idea what I was going to do, but my my wife and I, we got married like the day after, like the day we got married, neither has had a job or job prospects. (laughs) And then I got this email from Brandon Jones at TechSAGS, and they needed to hire two full time video people. Um, they already hired the first guy and they were calling, calling me to be the second one. So I said, yes. Um, and that's like kind of really where it started. And really since then, you know, I've been making a living doing this. Um, and so that takes us to Beirut.
0: Okay. And how long were you there with the tech sag stuff?
2: Um, almost two years, about a year and a half or something like that.
0: So then once you get to that point and, and you're decided, if you decided, okay, we're going to go to Beirut, we're going to do this thing. I mean, like what was going through your head as far as like, how are you planning on trying to get work? What was kind of your plan of attack or whatever?
2: Yeah. Um, I didn't have, like a super well thought out plan. Um, so we like, you know, College Station is a really cheap place to live. So when we were there, we just like, tried to save as much money as possible to give us like cushion, you know, cause I, I anticipated, I was like, look, I was like, I may only make like, you know, I may make like less than $20,000 or something like that, you know, this first year. So we need to have like enough to live on. And we got, we like had free rent at the school if we wanted it. And um, so like cost of living was pretty low, but, My plan was like, okay, go to Beirut, just start like meeting people. So I like would go downtown to this like co-working space. Um, That didn't really actually end up helping out all that much. (laughs) Um, I tried to get to know other people that were in the local video scene there. And, but my, like really what I wanted, I felt like I needed to do like two things. I said, I need to go out, make my own stuff that I can put out in the world that people will see and then hire me to do the same for them. And I think that's like, I still do that today. Um, and the second was also I do today, uh, was I had this list of, um, kind of like pitch targets. So, um, I would try to, I knew who I wanted to work for in the documentary space. And I said, okay, I'm going to meet with people and try to pitch myself to like be their man in Beirut. So, um, you know, I only really had like a couple meetings that came to good fruition. Like I was able at one point to like have coffee and sit down with Ann Bernard, who was the uh, New York Times bureau chief. Um, It went pretty well. It didn't really go anywhere. I I think I was still trying, I didn't understand fully how a lot of places like did their videos, like business model wise, I was trying to see how people hired. Um, And I think there was a lot more reliance on staff people than freelancers at that time. Um, and so, but I just, you know, but, but people still took a lot of pitches. And so I, I felt like the way that I'm gonna do this is I'm going to define a story and I can, I'm going to pitch it and then produce it and then get in. Um, I went through, so when I would go back home for Christmas, uh, you know, one year, like I, uh, booked my flight through New York with like a three day layover and I sent emails and cold calls and tried to get meetings with like, um, as many people, different places as I could. Um, I remember one, somebody at the New York times, like call me back and I, they'd seen some of my stuff and they were like, yeah, it's just really not what we're looking for. They're basically like, you're not there yet. And I was kind of like, okay, I got to go out there and I got to like figure out how to step up my game. Um, and, but I did have this one meeting with a guy who's probably, he's now been my biggest collaborator the past two years. Uh, so he, he's a guy named Anthony LaPay and he was at Radical Media at the time And uh, he came through my filmmaking partner in Beirut. So I worked with this guy named Jackson Allers, like on a lot of projects locally in Beirut. Uh, We did a lot of stuff for this magazine called Audio Culture. And that was great for me there. It paid very little, but um, he was getting into directing and I had like the more technical ability at this point to like shoot and edit. And so we'd collaborate together and create stuff for this magazine and like music and culture space. and that's kind of where I helped hone my skills and create a little bit of like a reel. Um, and so he was like, Hey, call my friend, he's in New York. And so we like met for like 20 minutes and then didn't hear for like six months. I thought it went well. Um, and that's where the black market gig came from that kind of led into the vice work. Um, and he, Oh, so I'm missing a step here. So I tried to do the same thing in the summer. And so I was in New York again in the summer. And I was like, hey, man, you want to catch up? He was at Vice at this time. He moved from medical to Vice. And um, he was like, hey, sorry, man, I can't make the meeting today, but I'm hooking up with this guy named Jerry. Like, you know, you guys go have coffee or whatever. So Jerry uh, Ricciotti, turns out he's like the managing DP for Vice. He's like the, so Jake Burkhart's guy in LA. Jerry is like the main guy in New York. And so we sat down, showed him some of my stuff, and basically, he was like, "Hey, let's go up to the office and see what we can get you on." Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, I remember that's how the Beirut the Beirut thing came about. They're actually going to send me to like China or something originally uh, first, but they were just you know, and that's like I think where timing comes in. So, like in this whole freelance pattern, you know, we're talking about looking at patterns. Yeah, it's funny because I that connection there in New York I couldn't have made it. if I didn't move to Beirut become friends with my really good friend, Jackson Allers, make films with him, get introduced to this one guy, but then get introduced to somebody else at the exact time when Viceland was launching, Viceland um, Vice and HBO was like renewed for three more seasons, um, in more episodes per season. And they just needed, they need good camera operators. And um, like I had, and I had like had enough time in Beirut to like do some of my own stuff, like, it's a reflect where I felt like I was at as a, as a cinematographer. So we said, Hey, that's great. You can do what we need to do. Let's like put you on a roster. Um, and so that's kind of really, I think where things like turned in a certain sense and it's all about relationships. Um, and so funny thing now is like, um, I'm on the second season of a show for history channel that Anthony is the executive producer on, uh, I'm the series DP and I just actually hired Jerry. <laughs> as, a, <laughs> as a camera operator <laughs> on one of our episodes so it's kind of like funny how like that comes full circle he's Jerry's a really talented DP he's freelancing based out of Salt Lake City now um, but yeah
0: what's the show that you're working on
2: so the my main gig right now uh, is called Unidentified um, it's a well the the like subtitle is uh, Ameri- Inside America's UFO Investigation and uh, I'm gonna give it like a synopsis, yeah, so yeah, yeah, so um I'm trying to think there's it's a big topic, and there's like a lot of yeah, so I think that <laughs> this topic is like trying to give people the right idea of the show because there's a lot of we say the word uFO like a lot of like a lot of different things pop in right. different people's minds, um and so basically they're was an article in 2017, like two years ago in December 2017, um, that the New York Times published that detailed um that the Pentagon had this uh secret um we call it UAP program is like the new proper word, unidentified aerial phenomenon. Cause it's it's you know it's bigger than just a flying, flying object. object. There's a lot of objects. Yeah. I think it's more accurate. So um the guy who had ran that, Lou Elizondo, w- left his position and joined this st- Organization called To the Stars Academy of Arts and Sciences, which was started by Tom DeLong. Shout out Tom DeLonge from Blink 182. And Angels Airways. Tom just finished. And his, what's uh, the other one? Uh,
0: mm-hmm. Boxcar Racer.
2: Boxcar Racer, yeah. Yeah. Um, so they are kind of the first season f- follows them really closely. Um, they're like the main protagonists as. Essentially, they continue to the work in the private sector, so um there's also other people that um were in government that are now kind of part of this collective uh that basically are investigating the phenomenon um and they for them, it's really like a national security issue right um but also there's a lot of curiosity so uh season one you know we talked to a lot of i mean we watched an episode yeah. together yeah. yeah um talked to a lot of pilots very credible people about things they've seen in the sky and what they are the terrestrial extraterrestrial i think terrestrial explanations are more interesting yeah, actually yeah, yeah. more problematic <laughs> yeah um but yeah so it's you know there's a bit of like human story and a little bit of like uh journalism in there so um uh i think the season, season 1 was it was supposed to be like a two hour special, got picked up, expanded into a six hour limited series. Um, like right when we wrapped the first two hours. And so it was kind of a crazy fall last year. Um it aired this summer. History renewed it and ordered ten episodes. So
0: They are out doing second season right now, basically. Yes, yeah.
2: So we're in the middle of second season, we've probably shot like
0: maybe three and a half
1: episodes
2: so far. Okay. Um yeah. So it's in I don't know, second season be good. You know, we got to, I think, step back a little bit, you know, think about story-wise, you know, where do we need to go in the second season? And then like kind of visually, um, after seeing how they, and that's an interesting thing about working on like, um, the first season of something like in, in long form is um, you know, for me it was like evolving uh, as we're shooting it. And so not, you know, it wasn't really until that era that I got to kind of watch and see how they're really using the, uh, the footage yeah, that we're yeah. giving Cause them. you're only
0: shooting it. You're not responsible for post-production or anything. Well, the so much, intention
2: right? changes like, you know, there's, you kind of told before you start, um, what it's going to look like. So a two hour special, it's like, okay, this is going to be like paste and cut, uh, kind of like a film. And, and it, overall that's like the goal, but when you add a lot of content, like kind of last minute, it, changes things a little bit and so um you know I think the second season like you know refining story refining visuals um and trying to just like elevate it um but uh, I've the past couple of years I've really transitioned into working on more longer form stuff um you know I did I worked for vice pretty heavily for the first couple of years in New York uh, and then transitioned into doing more stuff for um like one director who does feature films and then kind of my last year in New York, like last year, started doing a lot of stuff for a So A&E Networks is kind of like my main collaborator right now. And that kind of gets into like, you know, I moved from New York to Texas in the past year, um, but which is kind of ties into the freelance journey. Yeah. <laughs> that so was well, a big, that was a big thing.
0: What, uh, after you left Beirut and you went to New York, how long did you say you were in New York for? Three years? Three and a half years. Three and a half years. Yeah. What's... Well, Can you kind of fill in that gap there for me? Like what happened here in those three and a half years there?
2: Yeah. Um, So for me, like, I don't know, I feel really fortunate, you know, for me moving to New York, it was just a timing thing. I was able to meet the right people. And I mean, my wife and I, we knew that like, okay, if I move to New York, I can probably support us working with this one show because I needed so much. And that's really the first year, like I pretty much worked just on that show.
0: Uh, unidentified?
2: Uh, no, Vice and HBO. Vice and
0: HBO. Okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah so
2: okay. I, I worked, uh, I shot seasons four through six and then worked on Vice News Tonight and some Iceland stuff. And like my first two years, like, um, they were just doing so much content, um, that like that was, you know, that was paying the bills and I was busy. Um, but the other thing was like, I wasn't really meeting a whole lot of other people outside of that. Um, and so it wasn't until that's, that work started to slow down. Um, because that's the thing is like in the freelance world, you know, at least like in, I've kind of been, I'm in a world now where I'm, I'm working a lot for like, it's really like, it's two things. It's like documentary TV, uh, more long form now than advice is kind of like medium short form and like feature docs, um, is, you know, shows there's like cycles and, you know, you might have a good one or two years and then. A show ends, so, for instance, like this past, but like last year, uh, Vice and HBO like ended. and so there's like there was some of us that made that was like our main gig. gotta find something else. and if you don't have a wider net of like if your' kind of collaborator community or like network, you don't have somewhere else to jump unless people like disperse and work on other productions and they pick you up. Um, but it's really about all like the people, and so there, um, there was kind of like a transition where I reconnected with, um, this executive producer that kind of first got me, uh, into that world. And he just had some projects that he needed DP for, trusted me. Um, and then we started working on stuff together. Um, and so, um, yeah, but overall, like New York, you know, it's interesting because I think that it seemed like New York and LA in kind of what in our work, what it represents. And, um, there's like a lot of hegemony there, you know, in a terms lot of, what, of, I feel like there's kind of this coastal hegemony. Right. Um, and I think like the work that I do right now was pretty much like very much influenced and determined by being in New York. Um, and it'd probably be very different than if I had stayed here in mm-hmm. Dallas. Um, and I don't think one's like better or worse, but you know, like that's something, that was something that I think when I was in New York, I thought about like, I know some people move to like New York or like, cause it's like their dream and they're like pursuing, I think this filmmaking goal. Did that make sense? Yeah. yeah. Kind of like, I want to go and i want to step up and it's want to be about, a New York like, filmmaker. Right. I want to like step up and I want to do like this level of production. You know, I want to make like narrative films or bigger commercials and those kind of things. You know, it's like, you know, it's, New York is very career driven. And, uh, I think that I think this is actually, this is good to talk about. I think in the freelance like context, um, because being in Dallas now for since March, it's December now, over half a year. Um, it's given me like, I think, good perspective on my time in New York, um, just as like a person, like personally, but also like as a filmmaker. Um, and I think that New York is like, it's very career focused. And I think that like, it's going to push you creatively in good ways, but it also invites a lot of comparison. And I think it can be very easy to be dissatisfied or discontent, even when things are like going well, because there's such a high level of craft there. And, you know, when you're in New York, LA, the opportunities that are open to you or maybe not open, but you believe are open to you because you're in proximity to it. Realistically, it would be like, you know, a gigantic chasm because like, I'm just not there yet. Right. Right. But in my mind, I can see, well, there's a path, you know, if I want to shoot this show or work on this thing that I think is going to fulfill me because maybe I'm getting dissatisfied with what I'm doing now or somebody else got this cool gig and why didn't I get it? Cause you know, um, you know, I found myself doing a lot of that. And sometimes struggling to be like the, the thing that I was like, I was so excited to be working on the vice stuff. Like if you, when I first went to Beirut, like that was like my goal. And so like achieved that. But then you get there and usually you get into something and it's actually not as fulfilling or exciting as you think.
0: Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm here now. what
2: Yeah. And I think it was like, also like you reach a place creatively, okay, where I've grown and improved, but like, I want more, you know, you want to push creatively um, like to, two a different level. So I think a lot of it is, is this dualism between like, part of it is couched into like a good type of healthy discontent that, you know, that you want to take the next step, like as a storyteller or in your craft and how you elevate story through the visuals. Uh, but also part of it is just like this, you know, there's this tension between that and the part of you that wants it for like, Validation. Yeah yeah, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 And I think that it was like me. I think that was like uh, a good lesson from my time in New York because my first few months here in Dallas, I'd really ask myself a lot of questions of like, um, like, am I okay if I like lose like I didn't know if I was gonna hold on to a lot of the work that I did. And part of that's just like making an income, take care of my family. And the other part was like, okay, well, I've kind of like put my identity into this and to what I do maybe to an unhealthy degree um, because I think, and I don't want to like, you know, shit on New York too much. <laughs> it's <laughs> like uh, my wife and I'm like watching like a bunch of Noah Baumbach movies lately. And I'm like, ah, oh, Miss Nita, so many awesome romantic things about the city. Um, but it's also, I think like, you know, there's like every place has its own like perils. And I think that's the peril of a place like New York or LA. And it's like, you need to have, it's, you know, it's work to keep perspective and to be like healthy personally and then healthy creative, you know, like creatively, cause those are really intertwined. Mm-hmm. Um, so New York for me, like, I think that I grew, like grew a lot. And I think that for me, for me, the goal being there was always, it, it wasn't like to live there forever, to like be a, to be a New York family, to have like that life. Um, because I think that I always knew what it would ask of me, you know, uh, in terms of work. Was going to be like more than probably my family could really take, or that I wanted to give to what I would ask, you know, to like to the city, to the job. Um, and it's not where I wanted to like raise a family. So for us, it was kind of the springboard to be like, okay, can I spend a certain amount of time in New York to where I can then leave and have the life for my family that we want us to have and be able to like kind of be established enough to like, uh, in my work to kind of have a sustainable career somewhere else. yeah, And so that's kind of like in my freelancing journey, that's where I'm at right now. I'm in that part of like, kind of like investing some time, um, in a city that's kind of like I feel like the center of film and TV production, or at least for the documentary world. And then being able to see if I can take that out and, you know, use that time invested there, um, to be able to like give my, my family like a better life in Dallas.
0: So are you just basically now like you went there and kind of to develop a lot of those relationships and now that you have them, you're able to like maintain them from a distance a little bit more or?
2: Yes. So, um, yeah, I mean this past year it was interesting because I feel like the work that I've, you know, there's a very small amount of jobs I've actually missed out on because I wasn't in New York. Um, because I have, that's something like, I have all my own gear. So like I was doing vice news gigs um, and you know, the equipment I owned was the exact same stuff. You put all the gear room there. So uh, Dallas is like a really great place for domestic production um, because it's like in the middle of everywhere. So it was yeah. like faster Easy and to cheaper to like fly me to different places for shoots. So I'd like leave after everybody and get there before them. <laughs> 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 um, and uh, you know, A&E, I think Amy's like a good example. Like, Vice is really big. Um, and like, I think after a while, I kind of felt like a cog in a machine. Um, like, good relationships, but I think not like solid enough to really like, well, I think things really shifted. The main show I worked on like ended. So things changed there a bunch. Uh, but I think, really, like, relationship wise, uh, at and I feel like I developed the kind of relationships that I think that I really was looking for and hoped for. Um, like they treat me super well. I will also like, we will say this, like a lot of people do like shit on vice, um, <laughs> you know, in terms of, but like, I think that's department wise, like the HBO department, like, like I was paid a fair wage. I was paid on, I was on payroll and like treated well. Like the production was like, was really good. It's so, like, I had a good experience there. <laughs> um, so like, I'll like caveat that. Um, but I will say like, it's interesting comparing different places. Um, like Annie's like, the department I work in is uh the originals so like they do a lot of development and so like I one I already know the executive producer um but like I've been able to develop a relationship with like the people who run like the executives for like the ANE originals uh, department which is like a production company within AE networks right, right. that develops new shows and pilots and stuff like that and so there it's like I think it's been s- small enough for just the culture like I feel like I, one also like DPing a series, um, where there's like know kind if loyalty is the right word, but I was able to develop a relationship with them to where like, you know, I like, I think this show, like, I wanted to work on long form stuff. So like, I really try to pay a lot of attention to detail because I think that like, as a, you know, take this from the business side, like, you know, if you're a freelance cinematographer, your job is to create beautiful images. Yes. But the other half of the job that, you know, you don't really learn until you get into it, that the people that hire you really, what they really value. And I think that's why like I maintain that relationship and like they come back to me. And basically when I moved to Dallas, um, you know, they were like, Hey, that's cool. Like we get it. Like we have, we have families, like we want to hire you. We like working with you. We don't like care where you live, like move to Dallas, like our relationship, you know, our collaboration is unchanged. Um, so like that was like really great big relief for me and I think what I was really looking for In like a collaborative relationship Uh with a client uh Um, and so I think part of it is like they're happy with the visuals Um, but the other thing was like there's a lot of like important just like Uh, especially you're coming to like a director of photography level, you know, just like logistics and being detailed so it's you know, how can you collaborate with, uh, your production managers and production coordinators to like handle the camera department and crew? Um, like how can you make their lives easier? So that's like everything from like, you know, I'll sit, I I would sit down before each season and talk with our PM. Be like, Hey, here's what I think we're looking at for the season. You know, what we want to use rentals. Here's some estimates on like how much, like a three day or a week shoots will cost and we're looking at and like going through the budget and be like, does this work with what we have money wise, you know? So one that helps inform me, like how to do my job creatively. Cause I know the resources, but it also like helps, you know, them know what to expect. And it's like those extra things that like not everybody will necessarily do. Um, that I think like just putting in the effort to do your job really well. And so like I've, it's been good because I've like kind of pushed myself to be more organized detour oriented and see myself not as just kind of like contractor who comes in like, eh, shoot the footage, like, you know, ship off the drive, like peace, <laughs> you know, but it's all those, it's the extra stuff. I think that like, it's like treating myself. I think it was like being given a bigger opportunity it helped me like look at myself as a professional and then start really behaving like a professional. If that makes sense. So I think like that collaborative relationship, like I felt respected. And then, you know, in turn, like, I think that helped me kind of like be able to kind of embody, um, kind of this more like grown up (laughs) cinematographer that realizes that like, it's about managing people and logistics and the creative side of things. And like, that's, that's what things going to carry me. Like at least in like that aspect of my career. Um, because that's where I think like, you know, I think, that's, I think that's the one thing that maybe we don't talk about enough that I think is like the separating points between um, say at least in the cinematography world. You know, creating good images is like not hard these right, days. Right, a lot of people can do that. Yeah, everybody can do that. Like so many people can do that better than me, you know. Um, but it's about like when you're in the field and you're in pre-production and then getting stuff to post, you know, just I think the thing that actually solidified me with the post-production was like, my like uh, footage, like my production reports. So it's like little things like that. Like- you say um, production
0: reports, what is, what do you mean? Oh, um,
2: so, you know, say we go out, we shoot a week and, you know, I have a hard drive of footage and I'm handing it to an assistant editor that needs to organize all of that, uh, sync everything, organize sequences and prep it for the editor. Um, and I can just hand them the drive with like no notes and like make his life hell and he's gonna hate me and
0: he's having to go through and find everything and figure out what's what.
2: Or like I can see on top of stuff. Um I mean one, they have like required stuff that they want that I fail out, like, but also it's just other stuff like that one can help him be more efficient, um, in his job and do his job well. That if I just put a little bit of extra effort every, you know, each night when I'm ingesting and then like, you know, like the morning after I get back from a shoot. Um, but the other thing is I can put in notes that help him find the best stuff. So, you know, part of it's about, um, you know, being like a good teammate and like valuing him so that way he values what I'm giving him. Yeah. And cause like, I want that footage to be treated a certain way by the editors. And then I also want them to be able to find the best stuff and not miss things or know where like things maybe need to be fixed. Cause if I forget to tell you like, Hey, I'm shorting some coverage here, this or that, or, or, Hey, here's the intention behind this scene. And you may not recognize it just from the footage. You know, like when I'm shooting something in the field, like I want it to maybe be used a mm-hmm, certain way or at mm-hmm. least have them. You have at least there. an idea so, in
0: your head of how yeah. it could be pieced together in post.
2: Yeah. So I I just remember the first season, I was like kind of new to everybody there. And uh, I was getting called for like a different show that came in that department. And uh, one of the production managers, uh, I don't know, was, see, there was some comment about like, She's like, yeah, you're, you know, she's like the, uh, you know, post will love you forever because I love your production reports. <laughs> like uh, um, so it's like, uh, not even like a comment about the footage or anything like that, but like, you
0: know, it's the experience you provided them. Yeah. It's that little like extra kind of, yeah. Extra step. Cause yeah, I mean, it's like, they're hiring you to to produce the footage and like at the end of the day you do it, but right.
2: Cause I'm still a contractor, like, you know,
0: It's uh, it's kind of interesting though, cause you're, you're a contractor and you're a freelancer, but it's longer term. Yeah. Longer form. And so, I mean, what is a, how long is an average job last year? How, what's a contract length? Does that work
2: out? You know, that's something I'm still figuring out. Um, because I would say, you know, I've done the first series I did was something of a great big story. It was like a four part on cicada, the cicada documentary. Um, but it wasn't like traditionally in the sense of like this show was the first like, I guess advice is like a series, but like, a where it's all one story, uh-huh. you know, more uh-huh. like, you know, so it's like six hours of all kind of the same story. Um, so when they're calling me for that, um, cause with advice, it's kind of like, they just, I don't necessarily know how much work I was going to get in a year. I just kind of know. Cause like, there's all these different shoots and maybe average about, um, seven days per episode, if I even get to stand the whole time, you know, it was very kind of more chaotic. Um, but this, you know, I think the first season, um, you know, they said, hey, there's a special and then going to series, you know, I kind of, I would, I asked them, I said, well, how many, like, how many production days do you think we're going to have? You know, cause I need to be able to plan and know. And so they can get, they give me an idea, you know, that changes a bit, but um, you know, they were able to give me an idea of like production is going to run from here to here, maybe about this many days. Um, and I actually, for the great big story, um, series on Cicada, where they're hiring me for that, um, that was a big question. It was like, how many days am I going to work and what can I count on? So we actually put in my contract that that production company over the course of, you know, three months would hire me for X amount of days. And if they didn't reach that threshold on the main project, they would find it somewhere else.
0: Okay. So that way you're like for sure getting that of like, Hey, look, I'm going to be blocking this time off.
2: Yeah. But, but right now it's like, it's kind of informal. Like I've got like a contract for like any originals, just like blanket. And then I have one just for this show that's a little bit different provisions. And so I negotiate that from season to season.
0: Do they provide you with that or are you giving them the contract and saying, Hey, here's my contract or how does that Uh, stuff kind
2: of, well, they need to do like new star paperwork. And so they'll, you know, so I know when I know it's coming up, like I just set up a phone call with our production manager to be like, Hey, here's the stuff I want to talk about. You know, like, here's what I want to change for this season in my contract. And then we like, then we negotiate that. And then we set it, but there's not like a set number of days. Um, but you know, we were like kind of ramping up in like August, you know, they were able to, you know, I had like a long conversation with the EP and, he was kind of like, okay. He's like, we have 10 hours. He's like, I know that we want to, he's like, I asked for, you know, 10 production days per episode. He's like, so we're looking at about a hundred, hundred days, hundred shooting days, you know, between late September through March, that general time frame. And so I know like I won't be on all hundred days because, you know, sometimes they're short and there's overlap and we gotta hire other people. Um but that helps me plan financially to kind of know what other jobs I can take during that time and about what I can expect income wise. Um, because like it's all, it's very cyclical. So I have to know that, yeah, it'll take care of me October three, March, you know, income wise, but I know there's going to be extra and I've got to take that extra and actually like count on being able to like feed that into if the summer's slow or something like that. Yeah. Um, because like I, I'll probably make, um, you know, if we include this, it spans over the year, but like, we'll just take the fall, you know, like I think calculate out, that might be like half my income for the year, like in those, you know, like three, four, like busy months. So, um, you know, I think like cycles are, you know, it's a big part of freelancing. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So It's for, interesting uh, with
0: you though, cause I, f- I feel like where of me, a project might last, like, oh, I'm going to go shoot for a day and this, and from the time... Uh, we start talking about a project at the time it's wrapped, maybe three weeks. Whereas I feel like with you, it's like, Hey, you know, maybe, I mean, it's like, I feel like it's, it's not unrealistic for you to have like two jobs a year or Uh, something like that, like, like potentially, right. Or it's like, Hey, we're going to, you know, I'm shooting this show and I'm shooting this show and this show is going to take me about three months and this one's going to take me about six or seven and mm -hmm. between the two overlapping and everything else. Like that's all I can.
2: I mean, that's kind of where it's at right now, but what's interesting is it's, you know, I don't really know what 2020 is going to look like. Um, you know, for instance, like my summer was like a little bit slower, which was kind of different. And I don't think it actually was related to moving to Dallas as much as it was just the, you know, the, the main, you know, the team main clients I had, have their own cycles, you know, and that's just kind of where it fits. So like for me, you know, like I kind of make up for some summer stuff this fall, uh, you know, and then hold on, uh, to a little bit, but I I really like the long form stuff because it gives that consistency, and you know I like being able to like collaborate with people over, um, you know like months and, and really be able to put like a lot of like intention and in, in thought, you know. We mean too much in like the director DP collaboration because you know some stuff you have to just like sacrifice. Mm-hmm. Um, so because I do think that gets to like like financially and security wise, like long, the long form projects are good because you can count on income. Um, and you know, like I still have enough like free time to kind of work on little things here and there, like here, here in Dallas, which what I'm trying to do like my own stuff. Um, but the other thing about long form projects is you really gotta like the team that you work with and at a certain level, like the creative has to be fulfilling enough at, you know, doesn't need to like, you know, meter wildest dreams or something like that you know we can't all be working on like chef's table or whatever you know <laughs> uh, and you know the the other thing is thinking about okay if if I'm doing like a couple big projects a year, you know are is this the kind of job that's going to take me into the next job like in the right direction uh because you know you think you go a couple years and maybe you have like a few things to show for it, but it's maybe in the in a different vein that you want to go in terms of what you want to work on, you know, it can be hard to turn that around. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that's something I'm really thinking about right now is like, it's, you know, I don't know what's coming next, but I think that you have to be really, I'm realizing that I think like, I need to make sure I'm discerning and not just take anything. So that's like the flip side.
0: Do you, uh, I and mean, how do you, how do you, for yourself, like, how do you price stuff out and, 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 handle all that stuff
2: oh in terms of like rates and things
0: yeah especially when it comes to stuff like this i mean like it seems so like there's a lot of potential like things like headaches i could see coming up that'd be tough to deal with like say where you're like okay i've got this one show and we're going to be shooting from september to march but then there's going to be maybe some overlap and i'm doing this other show it's like okay well whenever it's august and you're agreeing to shoot this show that's running september to march and then you're picking up the other one how do you how do you handle things like potential overlap of like hey both shows want me to shoot on the same day or like contingencies for any of that kind of stuff or like
2: i haven't had to deal with that too much um you know last year this didn't overlap with much of anything just where it fell and the production schedule. I mean, it really kind of came at the right time. Cause my other like main gig was like petering out. <laughs>
0: um, so you able to just kind of like transition yeah, to the next one.
2: Yeah. And like right now there's only like one other project. Um, there's like a feature, uh, there's a feature doc. That's like, that's, that's like the end of this week. I'm, I'm going back to Alabama to like the second shoot for that. And that may kind of be in production over the next year. I don't know how often they'll call me. Um, but, you know, unidentified is like the priority. So, you know, I have to like, you know, if I have, I have to check if I get like a call to go to Alabama, I need to make sure, you know, I'm looking at, like, I have a link to the production calendar for unidentified and like a clear line of producers and the production managers to be like, Hey, you know, cause I'm not, I'm not a retainer. So, you know, you got to remember that. You, said you are? I'm
0: not. You're not. Okay. So,
2: with them, it's all very, very clear like, hey, I'm the series DP and this is my priority. Um, but if something comes up and say unidentified is like, say we got like some, I got a, like a first hold for them or something, and it's like a week out, and somebody else calls and they've got like firm dates. Cause this stuff has come up before. And like back when we, the first part of the season, there was like a shootout in LA and I had actually the first ship to Alabama and Alabama was like locked. And so I called, I was like, Hey, I was like, you know, this shows my priority, but you know, I need, I need to know, like, can you, can you book me? Or basically I was like, you need to either book me or like release me. Cause I've got like confirmed dates and I can't like lose both things. So, and that, like from a business standpoint, like I'm not a retainer. And I think in the past, I probably from like a place of insecurity, i mean, not valuing myself enough would have maybe like sacrificed something to be like, Oh no, I need to be available for them. But at the end of the day, it's like, uh, I think something I've learned is like, I think in the beginning of your career as a freelancer, and especially when you're like, and this is where I was, you know, I, I gave up a lot because I wanted to like get a foot in the door or I wanted to make sure like, almost like, Oh, I don't want to ruffle feathers. Cause I want people to like hire me and like me. Uh, but then you get to a certain point where it's like, I need to respect myself. I need to know my worth. And, um, you know what, if somebody really wants to hire me and they like, I'm going to put that ball in their court. So like let them basically tell me how much they value me. Um, and not like, you know, like it's not on me as a freelancer to like bear the production burden of like a gigantic company. And I think I've seen that a lot with people and I've, you know, I've had to like coach some, some B camera operators and stuff I've worked with who were kind of newer, who are kind of like approaching it like that. Cause they're like, Oh, I, I want them to like me. So they hire me again. And, you know, like I, you know, I had one guy I worked with and, you know, he, I'd say he kind of got taken advantage of by, uh, by a client, uh, because he wanted the work. And I looked at it and I was like, Hey man, don't do that again. <laughs> you know, they just the way he had structured, let them hire him and rates. And I was like, dude, you're getting underpaid about like this much. I was like, you need to like, you need to not do that. You know, it's like, if they, if they don't hire you, that's fine. And if they do, that's great. But either way they told you how much they value you, you know? So like, I, I think it's this place where like, and that's for all of us as freelancers, you know, like we don't, it's, it's, I think we need not overextend ourselves because I think clients and corporations and even, you know, ones that we feel like, do care about us and value us? Like if we don't advocate for ourselves, they have a bottom line and they will take advantage of us, whether it's like conscious or unconscious.
0: Right. Right. Yeah. Especially because there's more, there are so many other people that can do the same thing that we do. Yeah. That really I feel like the more I do this at the end of the day, it's less about, it's less about how much things cost. And more about the relationship and the experience.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, not yeah. to say the cost doesn't matter; it definitely does. But um, not—it's not as weighty as I guess. I feel like it used to be to me. What, what do
2: you mean, like uh, in terms of cost? Uh, like the opportunity cost?
0: No, just just like the the what it costs a client to pay for something. Okay, like it. It. I feel like if they like you. You have a good rapport with them, a good relationship, then they're not going to be so worried about the price about stuff mm-hmm. sometimes, right? Um and I don't know. I don't know how to explain, how to explain Well,
2: that. there's a value you bring beyond just the bottom line, right? Yeah. There's yeah, yeah. and you know, so here's an example. Like I drew a line um between seasons one and two, and um you know, there's some situations where, so we have a, like a style where like it, you know, you kind of have to adapt to it and it's hard to pick up for like dropping in somewhere in random, uh, random place in America where it's hard to find a local camera operator shooting for one or two days. And yeah, it's cheaper to like pick somebody up local, um, instead of bringing, you know, somebody that I know and trust from New York or the person I normally work with in LA. And you know, I basically said like, Hey, here's one of my like stipulations for season two is like, we did that a couple times in the first season and it was really hard, you know, for, and, and it's not, you know, so much on that person, but I was like, that person's new and they're doing their best. And it's just like the footage just was not working. Right. And I was like, yeah, you save a little bit there, but like, what are we spending all this money anyway on, you know, on the editors who are taking that footage on the flight to get everybody else there and to save like a pretty small amount of money to sacrifice the footage, which is what this is all about. You know, it's just not worth it. And so it's like, you know, value of what you're getting. And so it's, it's like, you know, if you really, it's, it's worth the extra money to have the right people yeah, yeah. because of the result, you know,
0: um, so you mentioned, so there's a situation you mentioned where you had the potential to go to LA to shoot some stuff and you had that on hold, but then also the Alabama stuff came mm-hmm. up. What, um, what, what, did, what ended up happening with that situation or how did that end up resolving?
2: Yeah. So that was like a little bit different. Once so that was like a studio shoot. It was gonna be one day. Um, we had already, and it was going to be matching a studio shoot that already happened in New York. Um, and that was one, that was an example of like one that I couldn't go do just because I don't live in New York anymore. Right. Uh, there was like a scout day and then another tech, there was like a tech scout day, maybe two scout days. And then like a whole prep day up there that were like over the course of a couple of weeks. And it was one of those things where it just like, they needed somebody who was there um, instead of like bringing me up twice mm-hmm, to like prep mm-hmm. to shoot for like one day in studio. Um, so, and that, and that instance, like, you know, I'd kind of directed from afar. Um, so like, I mean, the EP had conversations creatively about what we wanted, you know, I talk with the DP who's a guy that I've worked with before and, you know, we talked through everything and, you know, he went out and executed really great with a gaffer he works with and a cam op that he really trusts. And so we had kind of like, and that's where there's like less margin. It's not like a Verite shoot, you know, where the, the, the personnel matters a bit more in terms of being familiar with the show and the shooting uh-huh. style, uh-huh. all the, the, where the nuances really come out. Um, and so this is one where they, you know, and he did a really great job like sending me examples of their pre-light day and, and you know, kind of like I could give notes on how to tweak and stuff like that. So we pretty much have like a solid reference of what LA was going to look like. Okay. And plus like uh, my second unit uh, DP slash B camera off when he shoots with me is out there. So he shot the whole first season with me. And like, I trust him. And so it's like, I knew that it was going to be fine.
0: Like, so, so basically in that situation, you just kind of had somebody else like in that, like with that, you take, did you, so did you just end up taking the Alabama gig? I Take did. that and then said, Hey, I can't do the other. And so they end up doing the production still, but just finding other people to do it.
2: Yeah. So okay, my okay. second unit guy, he, he led that hired on crew people that he knows and works with in LA. Um, and they, you know, it's one of those things where like me being there, like, yeah, it's nice, but it's going to look the same. <laughs> you know, yeah, it's it's one thing where like, I'm not really at that point. Like I'm not really adding any value. They don't really need me. Um, and Alabama was more days. Um, but it was one of those things where I kind of told them, that Hey, like this is one day I'm really glad you guys want to bring me out. But, you know, I got, I got other financial pressures and stuff that I have to balance. So
0: what? uh, whenever you price out gigs, mm-hmm. how do you, how do you do that? How do you get to the, like what the number is?
2: Yeah. I mean, that's taken time. So I think it's really important that people in the industry talk about how much we get paid. So when I was at Vice, there was like, uh, you know, probably several other guys. There was kind of like a small group of us that were kind of like regular freelancers. And so we did, went on shoots together and even, you know, when then we were all, we we're all kind of leading shoots and not shooting as much together. You know, we would, get together and like hang out and we talk about how much we get paid. Um, and we just thought that was important because it turned out that like, you know, um, some people there was like, you know, even though we're doing the same job, there's like a hundred dollar difference a day. And so we had to make sure like, okay, is everybody's contract the same or like, you know, in certain situations can we ask for more and stuff like that? So I think it's partially gathering idea of the market. Um, and also working on enough productions, you see what they offer. And then kind of ask and see work. It's kind of like really through trial and error. But I think the biggest resource is the other people who are doing the same kind of work as you talking about how much you're getting paid and making sure that there's a good idea of what the market rate is. So at this point, like I pretty much know with certain productions, what a DP day rate is. Um, And there's a range. Um, But for example, like, for this show, um, you know, I said, here's my rate. And they came back and they were like, okay. Um, and it was like higher than what they could pay, I guess. And they said, well, here's what we have budgeted for this position. You know? And I said, fine, that works. But you know, it was pretty close, but it was basically like, you know, I overbid and they're like, here's the max that we budgeted. We can pay you that.
0: So how do you know what is the I mean, what is the like bottom amount for you? Is there a like, Hey, I won't go under this dollar amount. Oh yeah, totally. What's, you want to talk how, numbers? Yeah. I mean, we can get as granular as you yeah. want. Like, so, I would, like,
2: yeah, I mean, for me right now, so I make 800 a day um, and travel days are half. So that's pretty standard. Yep. And I'd say that's like for like <clears throat> cable, I think like on streaming services, you know, you can probably go to about a thousand to 1200 a day. Um, they have a little more money to throw around. Um but even like Vice and HBO I was doing 700 a day as an A camera operator like segment DP A camera operator. Um,
0: is that including your gear with you? Mm. Okay. That's just like the rate. It's just you.
2: Now now Vice, yeah, they didn't rent gear cuz they owned all their own gear. Um so like I have all, you know separate But oh, like if you have your own gear.
0: kit, if you brought your camera kit, was that included in your day rate or, mm. or are you Okay, so day rates it's it's own thing. Okay.
2: And so that's like I'd say like and so like 800 is pretty much like, you know, like same with like feature doc. And what I've kind of learned is like for feature docs and like cable is that's about where, you know, when I ask for more, like that's about where it's maxing out. I don't think a lot of them can afford to pay more than like a, a thousand a day or most of them, like 800 is kind of where they draw their line. And I really do think that's like, I've got to spend enough time to have an idea of budgets. And I think that like is, I think they legitimately, like that's what they can afford. mm
1: mm-hmm.
0: Is this, so then what's the, what's the like bottom, like, I won't go below this amount.
2: Oh yeah. Well, here's why. the interesting thing is like, in terms of like a day rate, you know, the, the doc stuff that I do is like, you know, it's, it's like on the lower end, you know, if I go do corporate stuff or, and I really don't do commercials right now, but that's all going to be like higher than what, you know, my day rate is with doc stuff. So I generally don't go below 750. Um, so it's just, cause like at this point I'm like, well, it just doesn't make sense. And the documentary stuff, like it's the volume that helps make it work. Cause I know I'm gonna get like a lot of days by the same time. I'm like, well, you know, if I want to make more, I can just go seek out more stuff, you know, and try to build that local business here in town. Uh, because with the doc stuff, it's like, I really, uh, it's like, I want to have the right projects and there's enough volume to where like that works. But I don't think that like, I'm at a point where I, want to go backwards. So that mm-hmm. makes sense mm-hmm. in terms of rates. Mm-hmm. Cause the older you get the larger family grows, the more financial. <laughs> the responsibilities there. Are and yeah. different yeah. things. Well, and yeah. it's also like, you know, like inflation, you know, when I, the, the, when I first started doing stuff with vice, I made four fifty a day. Um, and so, I mean, obviously I was like a B camera operator, but I've learned that's like the low end for that. <laughs> yeah. Yep. And then like, you know, and you know, it took maybe a year to like, get a raise, you know, up to like 600 and then up to 700. Um, but like I've, I parlayed like contracts even within like I said, with different places. So like at one point, I think I said like, Hey, like when Vice News tonight was like doing a contract. I was like, well, I get paid this much over here at Vice Land, advice and HBO. I need to have the same. They're like, okay. So um, yeah, I mean, and the thing I don't know is like, well, when do I start raising for inflation? Yeah, <laughs> I don't know, but that's, that's where it's at right now. Okay. Um, and it works for me. Like, I don't, I don't need to push for it to be more, but uh, I don't think it's less. Um, and from kind of what I gather, I think, you know, for, for like my experience level and like my resume, like, I think that's, you know, there's, I definitely have peers who are like making more than that a day, you know, on different projects, commercial stuff and corporate stuff. I don't really know what to charge. Like, I don't know what I can charge because I like, I haven't done a whole lot of that. And like, that's where, like, if I got hired for like, you know, I don't know, like a commercial or something, I'd have to go find, I'd, I'd have to like text some friends and call them and be like, what do I charge? And I've literally done that before, like other DPs that I know that are more experienced, you know, like my first job with, uh, when I was in Beirut doing the black market, the guy who was the a camera DP, I was like, Hey man, what do I charge? I was like, I I don't even, I was like, what do I ask for this? And he was like, well, here's how much I'm getting per day. And he's like, here's how much you you can ask. So that's why it's good for us to talk to each other, um, about how much you get paid. Shouldn't be awkward. Shouldn't be weird because everybody benefits. Yeah. yeah, Yeah. Conversation. Yep.
0: Uh, so what, what about, um, like acquiring projects or finding them in gigs? Are they, I know you kind of talked about how you try to foster relationships and stuff mm-hmm. kind of comes from that stuff. Are you ever like reaching out and pitching projects to people or, or, or hitting them up and trying to find work for them? Or are you more sitting back and people are reaching out to you and seeking you out or what's
2: kind of, it depends on the season. Like? Um uh, I haven't pitched a lot cause I haven't had to. Um, I, I want to pitch um, I think what I've learned is like well, at least with pitching stuff, I think that, you know, whenever the right thing comes along, like I'd like to be able to get into something like maybe you know, directing or actually like running a doc series. But I mean that's a little bit further down the line. Um but right now it's there you know, there's been yeah it's kind of a lot of like sitting back in a sense. Um because I think thinking about the relationship aspect is like, I don't want to view my collaborative relationships as being transactional. That makes sense. Yeah. Um. Because I think that, you know, we spend, I think there's relationships like the creative collaboration is important and, and the right collaboration is important. And so for me, like I'm always searching for, okay, who are the collaborators that I feel like, I can work well with, um, on multiple projects or on long projects. Um, one, like, you know, is it a good, I think before it's a good fit business wise, it just has to be a good fit just like as a team, as a creative team. Um, and so like, I think I'm just in the process of like meeting, you just kind of know, you know? And so I think for me, it's just like, like right now in Dallas, I just want to get to know more people and see who's doing what, who's thinking what way. And whenever there's like a synergy, you know, pursue that. Um, but, uh, you know, it's like right now there's enough coming to where I don't have to like, I'm not too much in like pursuit mode, but I think that I'll be, you know, when this series winds down in the spring, I don't know what's next. Um, so that feature film, you know, might throw me like several days every two months, but that's like not a, not a ton. Um, so I, I you know, I may like, I'm, you know, there's two things I could do. I, I, and I could kind of like hit up A&E, cause there's so much in production there. Like I don't worry too much right now. Like I could probably email them and be like, Hey, what do you have going on when you need a DP, DP for? And they might just like send me something. Now the question is like, is it the kind of thing I want to do? And is it the right thing for me? Like, you know, in terms of taking me in the right direction where I think I want to go or should go um, from a career standpoint, that's kind of a question mark. So right now where I'm at, I guess what I see like business development the most important thing that I can do is beyond making stuff for other people, make stuff for myself. Um, cause I've only done like a small amount of that in the past, you know, like nine years that I've been doing this almost decade. Um, and so I think that's like, I feel like I'm still finding my voice in a sense of like cultivating the, the material out there, um, that people can look at and say, okay, that's what we're going go to go to Andrew for. So I feel like right now it's like putting stuff out in the world that kind of says like, you know, if you need a DP or like a director, um, here's what I have to offer. Um, you know, I'm not gonna be right for everything, but having enough that says like, Oh, when I want something like that, they'll think of my name and they'll Mm -hmm. call me. Mm -hmm. And so I think I'm, that's where I'm at right now. is just trying to like create that body of work, you know, at least starting to small scale, um, that builds a brand cause I don't necessarily know if it's quite, there yet
0: do you uh do you show all the stuff you shoot or do you have access to all this or how does that work as far as showing (laughs) your work especially i could imagine being tough if you're shooting for shows that's hard maybe like getting the files sometimes or i guess if you're data managing though
2: yeah i mean that's you know like i can if i want like i can just like the thing is like at the end of the day like trying to ingest stuff and then like I can't really go through and like pick out favorite clips and you know, it just takes too much time and energy when you've like had a 12 hour day and yeah. you need to in- ingest like a terabyte of footage. Uh, you, know, <laughs> you just want to like, I just want to set up my card readers, like, you know, push transfer on hedge and go to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I don't have like access to a lot of it. Um, so like, I don't have a super updated reel. Uh, which is kind of why I want to shoot more stuff for myself because the stuff that I shoot for other people isn't necessarily the way I would do it myself. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a, it's like a compromise. So like I'm either executing somebody else's vision or I'm doing something, which is kind of a mix of like stuff that are my decisions and that are maybe somebody else's. And so, you know, I, I don't put everything out. Um, But I do, there is stuff out there in the world where I can send links, you know, uh, to like episodes or stuff I've worked on. But like, here's an example something I did for unidentified is, uh, the, our assistant editor, Michael Newton, really awesome guy. And like, you know, like, you know, I had the same AE for this season and last season, but having him there, it's like, we have this relationship to where like we can email and call and like, it's great. I can answer questions of his and I can give input. He sent me like a string out of just a bunch of like selects of footage. It was kind of compressed, but what I did is like cut, footage from season one into what I call the tonal cut. Uh because like, you know, I if I was to edit the show, it'd be different than what aired. Uh-huh. So like I just made like a two-minute kind of reel of stuff that I really liked from season one set to music that I felt like the tone that really kind of matched how I wanted the footage to feel. And so I have that like as a private link on Vimeo. So it was
0: more of like an aesthetic piece versus a uh, Yes. Uh, here's a story I shot. Like it's more going off of the visual look and feel of the footage. Totally. Yeah. So it's
2: kind of like, if I want to show somebody like that piece of work, I don't send them an episode. I'm like, Hey, here's a link to this. Um, this is kind of like in my mind, like what the footage feels like when I'm shooting it. Okay. You know, the intention. So like, I'll kind of, I'll do that. Um, and you know, I try to like pull stuff whenever I can, but, um, it has to be, it doesn't always work, you know, for certain, certain projects. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, uh, whenever you're getting requested for a, a project or an inquiry, you have an inquiry. I, I mean, it because it sounds like with a lot of your stuff, it's, it can be fairly straightforward as far as, because, because you're one piece of a, of a larger team where you're just, shooting. -hmm. I mean, kind of like in comparison to like me where it's like for me, most of the time I'm doing like the shooting and the editing and I might be picking the music and I might be doing the voiceover and I might be doing all these other things. And so you're doing a lot more. Yeah. Whenever somebody comes to me, they're trying to figure out what company they're going to go with Mm. or what person they're going to go with to create this whole piece. And so there's a lot more that comes into play as far as, Um, what those negotiations or conversations entail. Whereas in my mind, what I feel like with, with something like in a position like yourself, it, it would be more of somebody like me coming to you and saying, Hey, I need somebody to shoot this project that I have. Um, and I feel like at least at that point, it would be more set as far as what I'm looking for.
2: Right. And what it,
0: what I have as far as like a budget. And so, Mm -hmm. And so what I'm kind of wondering is like when people are inquiring uh, of your services, is there much like, I don't know if it's like maybe necessarily like conversation or negotiation, but it just, it feels like it would be very much more, Hey, are you available for this? Yes, I am. No, I'm not. What would it cost? It would cost this. What year do you have? This is yeah. it. Okay, cool. Do you want to do it? Yes. No.
2: Yeah. Sometimes it's like an email. It's like, Hey, we have a shoot, this location, these dates, are you available? What's your rate? And do you own X camera? And so I write back, like, yes, I'm available. Here's my rate, blah, blah, blah. And I write back and be like, okay, great. Let's have a convert, you know, let's move forward. And so a lot of times it, you know, is very much like that. If it's like new people, right? Okay. Um, but there's like two different. So, but on my end, like, that's like just the basics, but there's like a couple other things going on. So, like, if it's a shorter project, um, it's kind of like, I need to work. I'll just like do it and. You know, not, I'm not looking too much deeper. But if somebody's coming to me and it's like not as much of a one off thing and it's like the beginning of a project, you know, what I'm trying to figure out is like, okay, if I'm going to, you know, am I the right person? And usually it's somebody's emailing me because either it's somebody I've worked with before or it's like a director I've worked with before and it's somebody from the production company they're with, you know, like on their current film or whatever. Or um, somebody who, you know, was like a referral. And usually, if it's like a referral, it's like for like a one-off shoot where somebody's like, "Hey, so and so gave me your name because we have this shoot coming up, or DP can't make it, or like we need somebody and whatever." You know, kind of like filling in. But for a longer project, you know, I'll pretty much always do the first shoot if it's the beginning of a series or a show or something that's in development or like a film. Um, but know what I'm also trying to figure out is like, am I the right fit for them? And are they the right fit for me?
0: Um, it's almost like the first like run is kind of a test run. I like to do an episode and see how I runs and go. Totally. It, do we go from there kind of a deal?
2: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Cause it's like, you know, the, 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 the pricing and stuff is one thing, but you know, it's trying to figure out if I'm going to work on something for like half a year, a year, is it the right collaboration? Like creatively to, does it make sense? And not just for me, but also for them um just because you work together so closely.
0: Yeah. So um, if you're and then now if like you're in this project where you have like a 6-month six, a six project and say hey I know that I don't need another job for the next 6 months do you just not think about or worry about the next job after that for those 6 months or are uh, you kind of like actively the whole time like kind of like what's on the radar next or what's
2: Yeah. Um I think like I don't really think about it for like the first like 4 of those 6 months. <laughs> Um, you know, I, I don't really like once it starts getting towards the end, you know, last month or two of like a project. So for me, like when I think this will probably go through, I might not worry too much, like through March, but you know, when it probably gets February, I'm going to kind of start thinking about like, if I haven't heard about what's next, um, trying to like put feelers out and, um, that time in between what it's really good for is since I know there's going to be some consistency, what I'm trying to do is take those gaps and say, "Okay, I need to like do stuff here, like small personal projects." So that way, by the time then that six months comes around, I've got like a couple things that I'm like putting out in the world to where maybe it's like developing some new attention or relationships or stuff like that, and there's something fresh to show to help kind of like keep that momentum going. Right. And maybe nothing comes of it, but what I do know is if something is going to come, I have to do that, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. So there's no guarantee, but I know like, it's not going to happen without that. Yeah. If what has to happen is going to happen, I got to always be creating. Yeah. I can't guarantee it's going to happen. I guarantee it won't happen if I don't. Yeah, Exactly.
0: That's exactly. What, uh, so do you didn't, I mean, do you, as far as like tax filing and structuring and stuff, what do you do for that? Are you a sole proprietor? Or do you have a, a a technical like a proper business entity yeah
2: that's a good question so i'm i'm still just a sole proprietor and the reason for that is is the majority of my income is w-2s okay um yeah i mean i'd say right now probably 80 percent of my well this year has been more 10.9 stuff but i mean maybe like three quarters of my work uh is you know i'm, I'm on payroll which is awesome so like i submit time cards uh uh and sometimes I do. I used to do invoices for a year, but now like I'm doing put on the time card. Um, so all that goes through payroll. You know, I get you know the employer portion of FICA put in. But I don't get healthcare or anything um, like that because like it's like they offer mandatory stuff that just like isn't any better than what I already do. Yeah. And it's like you need the consistency. But um, uh, for some people, like producers, that's actually. It's, it's a better situation. It's more useful. Um, so yeah, taxes are not super complicated, but I think that if I was in a place to where I was like mostly getting 1099 income, I would probably switch to an LLC. And in that case, like with A&E, like I don't have to be on payroll, but it's just easier for me and for them. Mm -hmm. Um, and then for example, with this feature film that's shooting in Alabama, um, I thought it was probably gonna be just like invoices in 1099. Um, but they were like, you know, they're like we actually they're like we put all of our contractors um like in our payroll system. And I thought that was actually really great because it's better for me. Um it means like it means that they are contributing more, like a little bit more, you know, towards taxes. Um and it just gives me like better liability and all that stuff when I'm working for them. Workers comp, stuff like that. And so that was I really like that company a lot because they're like they decided that they're gonna value their contract workers, even if that was the only shoot that I did with them.
0: They're still gonna do that with you. Interesting. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. So they were like, I didn't really have a choice. Um, but like, i, hey, I this was, is the way we do this. But I was actually like pleased. I wasn't expecting that. I would
0: imagine there's probably some I bet you there's some insurance stuff with them too, potentially, depending yeah, on what maybe. you're doing, where it's like, cause I remember there being a shoot one time where I was working with a producer and he had to, like the company wanted him to have everybody technically on his payroll hmm. versus and be W2 employees for him versus being 1099 contractors. Okay. And it, I think it had something to do with some sort of like insurance on their part or some sort of legal thing
2: possibly yeah i've like something something i've it's learned is that for like big productions like insurance and legal is like a whole yeah whole big it's a whole
0: thing uh well dude we've been talking for a while it's been great it's been yeah. like an hour and a half um kind of just to kind of i mean i feel like we could talk for a couple more hours easily but um i guess to kind of wrap up a little bit is there like anything you feel we ought to talk about that I haven't asked you about especially in regards to like freelancing and kind of that life.
1: Um, no, I think we've like kind of really covered
2: everything. Um, though I think like, I think like I'm though, I think like right now I'm like in the middle of a really good and important lesson in my career in terms of, uh, I guess like I'm in the process or I think it was something new of like letting go of a lot of things. And I think that like, there's so much, I think there's so much, um, in this work, one freelancing, but also just like creative work, uh, or just like validation and like, you know, we're in security about a lot of things just like, um, it can be easy, like hold on to a lot of those things. Um, and I feel like for me, uh, I'm like glad I'm coming to like a better place of awareness uh, about a lot of that stuff. Um, and I think it's like bringing a lot of like freedom about like where I'm going and what I'm doing. Um, and I'm like really happy to be in, in Dallas. I think it was kind of like scary cause I didn't know what it was going to be like. Um, but like it's been really good. Like I I think I found like I'm finding Already better creative community here than I ever did when I was in New York, and for me as a freelancer, like that's, I think like those things, you know, like community relationships, um, maybe also just being in a city is not as crazy. I think has actually helped me be able to like take a fresher perspective at like the process and like what I create and let like, go a little bit of like the seeking like validation and like too putting too much of my identity in like filmmaking or in being a cinematographer. Um, so like I'm in the middle, I feel like of that kind of like process of growth right now. And like, I think this is a lot of that has to do, I think being here.
0: Were you, uh, I know you mentioned when you were in Beirut that you'd kind of been a part of a community, like a co working space there and trying to do some work like through that. And you're part of one here in Dallas. Were you part of anything like that in New York?
2: No, no. Yeah. I, you know, I searched for creative community in New York and it's just like a New York's a behemoth. Um, I think it's like, you don't know where to look and it, it is there, but it's, I don't know, it can be kind of hard to find, but everybody's always traveling and going in and out and everything. And so consistency is tough. Um, like I did join this thing called the video consortium, but then it has like a thousand people. So <laughs> I don't know, there's nothing like what is here there. In Beirut, it wasn't so much like co-working space. I just like, my main collaborator just kind of brought me into like a community that he had established, Okay, like being there 10 years. Um, so yeah, I mean, that was like, I think the huge thing missing for me in New York, like, you know, in terms of like work, like being, being like in New York as a filmmaker was like really lonely. You know, it's only when I went on the road that, you know, it was kind of like you're, you're with that's like when your community was there, like you kind of like shooting with the same people, but everything's kind of so crazy when you're back home that you just kind of feel like you're on an Island Yeah, and not sure where, like where to look.
0: Yeah. I can relate, yeah. man. That's kind of, it's been a lot of the reason why I've ended up, uh, back at, or I've ended up here at Space and back at a community, like a, a more of a creative uh, communal workspace or co-workspace. Yeah. was because of that, man, because I was about one at Weld for four or five years, and it was great. And, I mean, after I left, I just didn't really realize how big of a gap that it left and how much I needed that kind of uh, to have other people that I could have some shared experiences with and kind of that camaraderie of like, oh, I'm not in this alone, or I'm not the only person that feels whatever Mm -hmm. way.
2: Well, and do you know, that's actually kind of interesting, because I feel like was Weld the first endeavor like that? In Dallas? Like, what was it like it before? Was, like,
0: it was one of the first. So, that I, I was in college and dropped out, and right as I was dropping out, uh, Weld had been open for about a year at that point, and a friend of mine was interning there. And I had just kind of started and it was, and I would take my iMac up to a coffee shop and work for like 10 or 12 hours. Your iMac? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I was a coffee shop. I was, I, I frequented and uh, knew all the, the employees and and I would show up and have my iMac in my backseat of my car and I'd pull the box out and pull it out and go set up big 27-inch and sit back at a table oh. for 10 or 12 hours.
2: I was going to say, because like some laptops, you know, I mean laptops, uh, some cafes are like, no laptop policy. Oh but yeah. Just like, well, this was a shark there. <laughs> yeah, 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 <laughs> a
0: smaller one-off shop, and in, in it's over at Crooked I don't know if you've ever been over uh, there. I think
2: I've heard of it. I don't know. Okay.
0: I mean, it's a little smaller shop, like one-off, and and uh, I mean, I'd been a I'd been a regular for there for a while, but let's say I'd been there and and freelancing for a few months, and my friend was like, "Hey, man, I've been interning at this space. I think you ought to come check it out." Mm. And so I just. I went and checked it out one day and meeting people and kind of seeing the potential for business to come out of it. Cause I had a few people come up to me afterwards and be like, Oh, you're, so you're a video editor, huh? Cause at that point I was really kind of talking of myself mm-hmm. up more as being an editor. I just bought a computer for editing and that was pretty much all I had tool wise. I didn't have a great camera. Mm-hmm. And so, um, I had a couple of people afterwards. Uh, we had a, they had a member meeting that day where I got to meet everybody, kind of introduce myself and I had a couple of people come up to me afterwards and be like, Hey, so I might be able to help you get some work. And so I saw pretty quickly some of the potential value and benefit from being a part of that. Uh, and plus just the fact that I knew that it was people that were better than me. And so that it would kind of force me to up my game mm-hmm. and just yeah. be very challenging and encouraging and aspiring. And so, um, but I think, I th- I'm, my understanding is I think Weld was one of the first uh, like that in Dallas, uh, as far as especially uh, creative focused. And I don't think I, I haven't really found anything else quite like it. I think flock is pretty close. Mm-hmm. Wax is similar. Um, but then at the time, I mean, it was weld common desk and I feel like that was about it. There might've been a couple other like really small places,
2: but yeah. I mean, for me moving to Dallas, I knew that, well, I mean that getting a, becoming part of a co working space was like non-negotiable expense. Like it was a non-negotiable part of like my freelance strategy. I mean, I also like, you know, it, it helps that I know Doug <laughs> Yeah, and he runs this space. And like, that's the only reason I would have known about it. I mean, I've been to Flock too, um, as well. I met Justin, like good friend of mine, Andrew Shepard yeah. works over there, uh, another director here in Dallas. Uh, but I mean, like, I don't think that, yeah, I knew moving here, it's like, I couldn't work from home or like if I was going to like make it here, that was going to, I was going to have to be part of the community.
0: What made you, what made you think that or kind of like, how did you know that? And, and, and especially in comparison to being in New York where you didn't have that.
2: Well, in New York, I thought like, okay, it's a little bit different. Like I had just relationships and like that kind of, there was like a flywheel that was kind of already going in a certain sense. And I think I, you know, I expected like a certain amount to change moving to Dallas. Uh, but I also you knew I wanted to like balance, like I, I want to be able to I want to be like present enough here to where like, I don't want all my jobs to be on the road. Uh, okay. So like, I'd like to, I'd like to bring, um, you know, I'd like to get this place where I'm maybe like, I don't know, 50, 50, but place where I can like do half my work here and like half my work elsewhere. And so like, you know, just to, well, I also wanted to be part of the community. Like I wanted to like, you know, like, I'm really excited about being here in Dallas because, um, after being like in New York, I'm kind of like, I see, I think it's really hard for creatives to move to New York or LA and really be able to do well personally and be able to create because you're spending so much time trying to pay rent and pay the bills. It's just like crushing you. You lose like, you know, I mean, for some people, the city's invigorating, but it can be hard to feel like you have the space to really create, you know, it's not what like West village was like in the sixties when like Leonard Cohen was there and Bob Dylan and Bushwick is not what it Williamsburg. Bushwick is not what it was like in the early two thousands when like MGMT and all these bands came out. Like New York is not really a place where people can go and like create stuff and kind of like bootstrap anymore. And I think that like, it's really exciting to think that a place like Dallas and other cities in America, like, you know, in the middle of the country can maybe like become that which was lost. Yeah. So for me, like that's kinda like my dream. Um (laughs) for like and so I just, you know, knew like being, you know, that's what I was missing in New York, but like that that's what I wanted here was like that sense of like creative community. But also like if I was gonna get work, I need to know people.
0: Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's cool, man. Well glad to I'm glad to have you around. It's been cool getting to know you. Uh where can people find you and work or your reels or whatever online
2: yeah um i got a website andrewk.com it's pretty much all there okay cool um yeah
0: and then you find your work on like netflix and hulu and hbo and Bias and
2: no just hbo and history channel okay pretty much okay if not the internet
0: cool well put some links in the show notes and a link to your work find those anywhere you find this podcast or you can go to vacacy.com slash freelance Friday. Thank you listeners for listening. Really the show is for you. And while we may tell the stories of freelancers on here and have conversations, ultimately it's for you and here to help you. And so what is helpful for me is to know if the things that we're talking about are indeed helpful for you, or if there are any other things that you would like to hear talked about on the show uh, and some of the best ways that you can kind of give me that feedback are first and foremost to leave ratings and reviews. Now, whether they're positive or negative, don't care quite as much. Obviously, like I'm an artist and a creative. We all kind of want that validation and that we're doing well. But at the end of the day, I'd rather have honest feedback. Uh, also, you can message me on Instagram or you can email me freelance at Whatever you choose, I'm thankful for it and thankful for you listening. I'll see you next time. Freelance Freddy is a VKC production. VKC is a freelance content creator based in the United States and available worldwide. VKC. Big production value, freelance agility and scale.